Yehuda Amachai, the foremost Israeli poet, was born in 1924 in Würzburg, Germany. He, along with his parents, moved to Palestine 11 years later. As he was growing up as a young man, he served in the British Army during World War II. And then he fought for Israeli independence in the Palmach from 1948 to 1949. As the Italian poet Dante brought the Italian language of everyday life into literature, or as Constantin Cavafy, early in our century, brought Demotic Greek into poetry, so Yehuda Amachai brought the New Hebrew, the spoken contemporary language of Israel, the language that people used on the streets and in their homes. He brought this contemporary language, not the classical literary Hebrew of the Bible, to his poems. He created those poems in contemporary spoken Hebrew and in so doing blazed the way for many of his compatriots and created vast new linguistic resources for the Hebrew poet. Amachai's poetry itself is elegiac. That is, his poems to a very large extent are elegies. Their central subjects are loss and remembrance of what is lost. But to this serious task, one of the most serious tasks of poetry, he brings wonderful resources. He brings humor. He brings a pervasive irony. He brings, it seems to me, a whole host of voices and registers for those voices. And perhaps most of all, he brings a love of figurative language. His poetry blends the theme of loss with an extravagance of tropes. Tropes are a fancy way of saying figures of speech. His use of tropes is at times, I think, over the top and creates a sense of energy in his poems that is almost unparalleled in 20th century writing. He uses similes, metaphors, paradox, symbols, images. He throws in handfuls and armfuls of these things, always controlled, always with the purpose of the poem in mind. But in so doing, in creating a wonderful combination of everyday language, extravagant figures of speech, and a most serious and profoundly sad topic, that of loss. He creates a poetry that is at once accessible and admirable, that is both simple and yet deep and resonant. Let's turn to a poem about his father. It's called My Father in a White Space Suit. And it is an elegy. It's a remembrance of his father. The poem begins with an image of his father, an image that I think we can capture for ourselves. His father is portrayed as being in a spacesuit, one of those big, bulky spacesuits that makes arms and legs look like elephant uh, uh, the legs of elephants that makes the body of a man look like a kind of cartoon caricature. Um, and his father in the spacesuit uh, walks around in the first two stanzas and then again in the last what seems to be the surface of the moon. But of course he's walking not just on the surface of the moon but into and through the poet's memory, what the poet calls, he walks over the surface of my life 
that doesn't hold on to a thing. Let me read the poem and then we'll go back and look at some of its elements. My father, in a white space suit, walks around with the light, heavy steps of the dead over the surface of my life that doesn't hold on to a thing. He calls out names. This is the crater of childhood. This is an abyss. This happened at your bar mitzvah. These are white peaks. This is a deep voice from then. He takes specimens and puts them away in his gear, sand, words, the sighing stones of my dreams. He surveys and determines. He calls me the planet of his longings, land of my childhood, his childhood, our childhood. Learn to play the violin, my son. When you are grown up, music will help you in difficult moments of loneliness and pain. That's what he told me once, but I didn't believe him. And then he floats, how he floats, into the grief of his endless white death. As we saw, the poem begins with the image of his father in a white spacesuit, walking around with the light, heavy steps of the dead. And in that second line, we have a paradox. How can steps be light and heavy at the same time? Well, physically, there are heavy boots on the space man here who those boots must fight against the reduced gravity of the moon. So the steps would seem to be heavy, but because of lesser gravity, there's a tendency to float. And that floating will come up at the end of the poem. So that steps are light and heavy. But in more symbolic terms, those steps are light because his father is gone. There's no physical presence anymore. And yet there is a heaviness that is connected to being dead and to the grief which will come up in the final lines. In lines three and four, Amachai tells us he walks over the surface of my life that doesn't hold on to a thing. It's a self-criticism here. Perhaps even to a point of certain kind of self-hatred I can't hold on to anything. I drift myself, float through things. Nothing sticks to me. Now that phrase needs to keep resounding in our minds, that my life that doesn't hold on to a thing, because at the very end of the poem, he will return to that as his father floats away from him. The second stanza mixes voices. His father is here cited in indirect quotation. He calls out names. This is the crater of childhood. This is an abyss. His father starts out as a kind of a, a guide, saying, pointing out features of the moon. But I think the trope of exploration, which unites this whole stanza, has his father playing different roles. He starts out as a guide, and then as he maps the details. He's a geographer. Then he takes specimens and puts them away in his gear, sand, words, the sighing stones of my dreams. Then he's a geologist. He surveys and determines. He's a surveyor. He even is a bit of an astronomer. He calls me the planet of his longings. And the closeness between poet and his father come in a kind of convergence. He calls me the planet of his longings, land of my childhood, his childhood, our childhood. Then we move in the third stanza to direct quotation. His father gives him the kind of advice that fathers give to sons and that sons don't listen to. Learn to play the violin, my son. When you are grown up, music will help you in difficult moments of loneliness and pain. 
That's what he told me once, but I didn't believe him. That line is very ironic. His father told him that, and Amachai says he didn't believe him, but of course he did on some other level of his being. He did believe him, because Amachai is relating his rejection of his father's advice to to learn music because music will help in difficult moments of loneliness and pain. He doesn't reject that. He is citing this in a poem, itself a form of verbal music. That is the advice that art assuages loneliness and pain comes to us in a poem, a poem we understand which is meant for the poet to assuage his loneliness and pain. So although initially he rejects, as a young man, the advice of his father, he takes it very much to heart. It is the very basis of the enterprise in which the poet and we as readers are engaged. The use of art to deal with difficult moments of loneliness and pain. And then we move to the final stanza, one and a half lines. Amakai is particularly good at making a turn at the ends of poems and closing them off with a sense of both wonder and finality. At the end of this poem, his father in the spacesuit, we're back to the father in the white spacesuit, somehow gravity and the heavy boots don't work and he floats off the surface of the moon on which he's been walking and then he floats, how he floats into the grief of his endless white death. That floating connects us back to the beginning of the poem where he walks with the steps of the dead over the surface of my life that doesn't hold on to a thing. He seems to float away but again, we have a deep irony. He floats away from the surface and into grief. Grief, of course, is Amakai's emotion. Amakai has not forgotten his father. He not only writes this poem, but the grief is endless, into the grief of his endless white death. If we look at that final image, he floats away from the surface, but not so much upward into space where he'll get lost as downward into the poet's heart and his grief. He floats clearly from life when he was alive and remembered during the poet's childhood into death. He floats from time the days that marked the poet's childhood, his bar mitzvah, his uh, talks about music, floats from time into the endlessness of an eternity of death. And at the same time, the poet floats from childhood into maturity as he copes with loss. Here's another poem about Fathers and Sons, it's from a series of short poems called Seven Laments for the War Dead, and this is number one. Mr. Beringer, whose son fell at the canal that strangers dug so ships could cross the desert, crosses my path at Jaffa Gate. He has grown very thin, has lost the weight of his son. That's why he floats so lightly in the alleys and gets caught in my heart like little twigs that drift away. The poem begins with oppositions, the strange phenomena of ships in the Suez Canal crossing the desert, that is ocean and the driest of land, but an a more important opposition between Mr. Beringer, whose son, in the first line, the closeness of family, and the second line, fell at the canal that strangers dug. The difference between family and strangers. And in this poem, Mr. Beringer will be both someone outside of 
the poet's immediate circle. He will be, in the sense, known by the stranger, but he will also be, as we will see, part of the poet's family. The lightness that is mentioned in those first two lines of the second stanza, he has grown very thin, has lost the weight of his son. That lightness is contrasted with the heaviness of grief and consequence. Just as the floating, an image we had in the last poem, contrasts here with getting caught in my heart. The drifting away, the second stanza I'll repeat, he has grown very thin, has lost the weight of his son, that's why he floats so lightly in the alleys and gets caught in my heart like little twigs that drift away. That drifting away, of course, contrasts with the remaining little twigs get caught. And perhaps most importantly, the little twigs and the thinness are opposed to the substantiality of grief and memory. Mr. Beringer has grown very thin, has lost the weight of his son. What's interesting is that the actuality that this man is thin, I, I, I think he doesn't eat when his grief has overcome him and he doesn't eat. He probably doesn't sleep well. Life has no meaning. That actuality of growing thin is read as he has lost the weight of his son, the thinness, and the, it's as if the son were so much a part of him that his death makes him thin. And being thin and moving through the alleys, probably not wanting to meet people and talk about things that are so painful, being thin, he seems to float along. He's almost insubstantial. He floats so lightly in the alleys, and yet he doesn't float away. He gets caught in my heart like little twigs that drift away. We have this sense of, of grief and loss, and in this particular poem, sacrifice. This father has, not voluntarily, but has given over his son uh, in war to protect the country that both the poet and Mr. Barringer inhabit, Israel, that the son has gone away, the father is in the process of going away, and yet the father and through the father the son get caught in my heart. Something remains, like little twigs that drift away. Of course, the twigs don't drift away. They get caught in the heart. And so in the space of eight lines, Amakai memorializes not only the dead, but those whose losses are great and who still survive. And he takes them into his heart and hopefully into Like William Butler Yeats, like Pablo Neruda, Yehuda Amakai does not shrink from love in our century. He writes a great many love poems, and I think he's a, a wonderful love poet. Here is a brief poem called Love Song, which is about first love and later love. This is how it started. Suddenly it felt loose and light and happy inside like when you feel your shoelaces loosening a bit and you bend down. Then came other days. And now I'm like a Trojan horse filled with terrible loves. Every night they break out and run wild and at dawn they come back into my dark belly. Not a very long poem, the first of the three stanzas, the second stanzas, then came other days, it's one short phrase. Uh, 
The first of three stanzas is about new love. This is how it started. Suddenly it felt loose and light and happy inside. And then this simile that stops us in our tracks makes us think, why is it like when you feel your shoelaces loosening a bit and you bend down? Well, this first love is a kind of a change. Something has opened up, I suppose, one's heart and one's emotions. Like loosening shoelaces, something has gone amiss, in this case, not badly. And that bending down, which is so integral to the image, is something that stops us, makes us think, why is first love like when you feel your shoelaces loosening a bit and you bend down? The answer is, I think, that it's like when the blood suddenly rushes to your head as you bend down to your shoes rather than pick your shoe up on a chair. So this sense of loosening and the blood rushing, rushing is, is conveyed to us by this remarkable simile. Then there's a skipped line in the new stanza, then came other days, which he does not describe. We know, because they are other days, that they are not loose and light and happy inside. And then we come to the third stanza, and now I'm like a Trojan horse. That was the huge wooden horse that the Athenians seemed just to be a wooden horse, but the Athenians hid inside its huge, empty chest and belly cavity, and the Trojans brought it within their wa walls, thinking the Greeks had abandoned it, thinking it was a trophy, and at night the Greeks came out and slaughtered the Trojans and took over the city. So the Trojan horse is a is at once something that is empty inside, that is filled with with loss, destruction, and betrayal that is occupied by a conquering force. And now I'm like a Trojan horse, Amakai says, filled with terrible loves. Every night they break out and run wild. Every night his passions, his need for sex, his incredible desires, these terrible loves, every night they break out and and he is out of control. They run wild and he is destroyed by their onslaught as the Trojans are destroyed. And at dawn they come back into my dark belly. Every night the passions, the end of the night, the passions return to him and he goes on to face another day. Why is his bed belly dark? In some ways, he is benighted. This is a mature and, to quote the poem, terrible love, not the loose and light and happy new love. In some ways, the belly is dark because he's talking about what is inside him, just as the inside of the horse without window or opening is dark. In some ways, this dark belly is his actual older man's belly with dark hair growing on it, no longer the belly of sweet youth. This is a poem, this love song about the transformation of love from something new and opening and wondrous to something terrible, wild, that lives inside one occupies one, betrays one, conquers one, and sets us afloat on the following day. We live in a very violent world. The 20th century has been marked by violence from the massacre of the Armenians in the early years of the century through the bloodiest war the world has ever known in the First World War, to the even bloodier Second World War, with its concentration camps, to the wars and violence of our own time, as Robert Lowell once put it, and 
descending to small war after small war. Violence seems one of the conditions of the modern world. In Amakai's poem, The Diameter of the Bomb, he looks at this violence rather directly. It's a poem of, I think, great, great power, partly because it has such a capacity to surprise us. The poem is built on arithmetic. It's called the diameter of the bomb. The diameter we need to remind ourselves is the measurement of the extent of a circle. It's, it's the, the distance from one side of a circle to the other through the center of the circle. And the poem will be concerned with diameters of increasing circles. The diameter of the bomb was 30 centimeters, and the diameter of his effective range was about seven meters with four dead and 11 wounded. And around these in a larger circle of pain and time, two hospitals are scattered. That's how the poem begins. So it begins with diameters. It seems like a lesson in partially basic geometry, partially arithmetic. It's filled with numbers and simple circles that are expanding. And I think as the poem goes through those lines, which I read in the most matter-of-fact sense, we, we know where it's going. It begins with a scientific measurement, 30 centimeters for the bomb, 7 meters for its range. Around these, in a larger circle of pain and time, two hospitals are scattered. We know that the poem is going to move outward in circles, and we think we have it figured. It does move in larger circles, and yet the end of the poem move someplace which we don't expect. And I think the last two lines come as such a surprise, are so shocking to us that the poem resonates on a very deep level within us and within our consciousness. Notice as I read this poem, the stress on diameters and circles on measurement and on numbers. He'll number how many dead and wounded and how many hospitals and how many graveyards. The attempt at precision here, which is something that the Polish poet Zbigniew Herbert also concerned about remembering victims, which is what this poem does. It too is an elegy and a warning, and even more a sense of the horrors of existence. This poem is built on precise observation, and yet it moves beyond that to something else. The Diameter of the Bomb. The diameter of the bomb was 30 centimeters and the diameter of its effective range about seven meters, with four dead and eleven wounded, and around these, in a larger circle of pain and time, two hospitals are scattered and one graveyard. But the young woman who was buried in the city she came from, at a distance of more than a hundred kilometers, enlarges the circle considerably, and the solitary man mourning her death at the distant shores of a country far across the sea includes the entire world in the circle. And I won't even mention the crying of orphans that reaches up to the throne of God and beyond, making a circle with no end and no God. The last lines of that poem, when he thinks of the young people whose fathers died in this bomb blast, who are now orphaned, the innocents who suffer, the children whose lives are in wreckage, 
he realizes that their cries reach up to the throne of God since God is the creator and made a world in which these terrible things can happen they reach up to the throne of God and beyond and if the cries reach beyond God they make a circle that is beyond the eternal and the everlasting beyond the circle then can have no end and then the stunning and poignant and tragic even beyond tragic conclusion and I won't even mention the crying of orphans that reaches up to the throne of God and beyond making a circle with no end and no God the largest circle of death destruction despair carries human beings even beyond God the poem begins with numbers 30 7 4 11 it runs out of numbers it moves to things like single and distant and entire and it finally in a sense ravels like a ball of yarn unraveling it it ravels out of understanding the circle is so large it has no end as grief has no end and in this larger circle there is no God because it's beyond God as assuaging the pain of loss is beyond understanding here is another love poem despite his enjoyment of love and his sense of its importance this poem too is an elegy for a love that ended it's called in the morning it was still night the poem begins with that paradox of in the morning it was still night and the lights were on whether that means morning came but they felt benighted or whether it means literally that it was time to get up and get out of bed which is what we call morning but it was so early that there was still night and the lights were on is it can be either and in this poem two lovers arise in the morning knowing that this is their final at least for now their final moment together before they separate in the morning it was still night and the lights were on when we rose from happiness like people who rise from the dead and like them in an instant each of us remembered a former life that's why we separated you put on an old-fashioned blouse of striped silk and a tight skirt a stewardess of goodbyes from some earlier generation and already our voices were like loudspeakers announcing times and places from your leather bag with its soft folds like an old woman's cheeks you took out lipstick a passport and a letter sharp edged as a knife and put them on the table then you put everything away again I said I'll move back a little as at an exhibition to see the whole picture and I haven't stopped moving back time is as light as froth the heavy sediment stays in us forever like people arising from the dead they resume their former existence we rose from happiness like people who rise from the dead but of course they are rising from happiness into something that is not happiness like them in an instant each of us remembered a former life that's why we separated they have other lives to live she looks in this extravagant um, metaphor she puts on her 
striped silk blouse and a tight skirt. She looks like a stewardess, and he thinks a stewardess of goodbyes. And then he thinks, yes, this is a time for departures. Already our voices were like loudspeakers announcing times and places. He says, I, I, I need to be in Haifa this morning at 10 o'clock. And she says, I need to be at the airport at uh, 10.30, right? Announcing times and places. And they're moving to a more objective way of speaking. This is no longer the endearments of the nighttime. We know she's leaving because from your leather bag with its soft holes like an old women's, woman's cheeks. You took out lipstick. She's going to, I quote D.S. Eliot here, prepare a face to meet the faces that you meet. A passport. That means she is traveling and moving away to someplace foreign. And a letter sharp-edged as a knife. Whether she wrote him the letter, or more likely he wrote her the letter, or possibly the letter was written to her. This letter has to do with the reasons they cannot see each other again, and that's why it's sharp-edged as a knife. And she puts all these things back in her leather pocketbook. And then he says, I think, lines that are wonderfully self-critical. He spares himself little here. He says, I said, I'll move back a little as at an exhibition to see the whole picture. You know how you go to a museum and you look at a painting and you realize you're seeing the parts. So you step back to try and see all the pieces put together. He's trying to see what this woman means, what this affair has meant, perhaps what his life means. But really what happens as he backs away, that becomes the gesture of a lifetime. I said I'll move back a little as at an exhibition to see the whole picture, and I haven't stopped moving back. Seems to me that's a line that pertains to many failed human relationships, perhaps more often with men than with women, stepping back and back, not forward into commitment. Time is light as froth, he says. Time passes so lightly we hardly know it goes. The summer ends, another birthday comes. We wake up and we're ten years older. We The days seem to pass by fleetingly. And the, the, the buried metaphor here is of, of water, of uh, waves or perhaps a, a river uh, as water moves, sometimes it captures air in little bubbles, and so we have froth. Time is light as froth, the heavy sediment that which drops out of the water of time. The heavy sediment stays in us forever. I think this final couplet summarizes Amachai. He sees that time passes. He's a poet of the heavy sediment which stays in us forever, of the remnants of the time that has passed. And he does two things with those remnants, as he does in this poem. By remembering, he mourns what has been lost, whether it's his father or the son of someone he sees on the street or his own youth, or in this case, a passion that has moved out of his life, or rather that he has moved out of, and I haven't stopped moving back. So there is a, a mourning of what ha has been, for what has been lost, but there is also, he's a, a Jewish poet, and his poems are in some ways like the Jewish prayer in remembrance of the dead, the Kaddish. By remembering what has been lost, one retains it, not in actuality, but in memory, not in everyday life, but in the imagination. But it is the only way to retain what passes by as lightly as froth. Time is as light as froth, the palm ends, the heavy sediment 
stays in us forever. Amakai is a poet who explores the grief over what has been lost, who I think rages against a world of such loss, but who also affirms the necessity of memory, the need to remember, the need to recognize the very center of ourselves, which is the heavy sediment which stays in us forever. He's not only a poet of loss, of course. I, I mentioned early on that there's an energy to his poems. Here, here's one called, I feel just fine in my pants. It's a praise of himself, his life, his phallus, which is what is in his pants. And he praises his penis and his sexual feelings because it's part of a continuing cycle of begetting. They begat and begat right up until me. And this is the continuity of life and in particular of Jewish life. He says his victory is hidden, just as his penis is hidden in his pants. Even though other people can't see that sex is part of the continuity of things. Even though he knows himself to be terribly mortal, I'm made out of remnants of flesh and blood, scraps of all sorts of Weltanschauung. Weltanschauung is the, is the way one sees the world. It's a German term. So we're all pieces of our time. And he says, even though I know I'm nothing but the sediments of history, I'm the generation that's pot bottom. Still, he says, generations go on. I'm part of the cycle of life. I feel fine in my pants. So here is the exuberant, I feel just fine in my pants by Yehuda Amachai. If the Romans hadn't boasted about their victory on the Arch of Titus, we wouldn't know the shape of the menorah in the temple. But the shape of Jews we know, because they begat and begat right up until me. I feel just fine in my pants in which my victory is hidden. Even though I know I'm going to die, and even though I know the Messiah won't come, I feel just fine. I'm made out of remnants of flesh and blood, scraps of all sorts of Weltanschauung. I'm the generation that's the pot bottom. Sometimes at night when I can't sleep, I hear the hard spoon scratching, scraping at the bottom of the pot. Still, I feel fine in my pants. I feel just fine. A poem which is also on a Jewish theme is called Jews in the Land of Israel, and it's built on an opposition and feeling that gives the poem its structure. As an emigre to Israel, as someone who was born in Europe, Amakai feels sometimes strange to be living not in the forest, but in the desert, not in the gray darkness of a European winter, but the bright sun of Israel. He feels he's been cut off from his past, and and uh, he relates that to circumcision, the Jewish practice of cutting off the foreskin of, of the penis in males. And he alludes to a story in Genesis, the Bible story of Shechem and the sons of Jacob, which is about circumcision, adult circumcision, about pain, and uh, it's also about people wanting to be part of a land, but but being cut off from it. Uh, so there are all sorts of symbolic reverberations in that story, which is in Genesis 34 and following. Uh, the opposition I mentioned is between this sense of rootlessness and the sense of rootedness that he has in Israel. He always wonders if he belongs, and yet he knows this is the only home he has. Uh, 
and that it is his home because he has in some sense purchased this home at great cost. Here then is Jews in the land of Israel. We forget where we came from. Our Jewish names from the exile give us away. Bring back the memory of flower and fruit, medieval cities, metals, knights who turned to stone, roses, spices whose scent drifted away, precious stones, lots of red, handicrafts long gone from the world. The hands are gone too. Circumcision does it to us, as in the Bible story of Shechem and the sons of Jacob, so that we go on hurting the rest of our lives. What are we doing coming back here with this pain? Our longings were drained together with the swamps. The desert blooms for us, and our children are beautiful. Even the wrecks of ships that sunk on the way reached this shore. Even winds did not all the sails. What are we doing in this dark land with its yellow shadows that pierce the eyes? Every now and then someone says, even after 40 or 50 years, the sun is killing me. What are we doing with these souls of mist, with these names, with our eyes of forest, with our beautiful children, with our quick blood? Spilled blood is not the roots of trees, but it's the closest thing to roots we have. That poem ends with a transition through the mention of blood. With our quick northern blood from cold climes, what are we doing in this hot desert? And the, the notion of blood reminds him of spilled blood. Spilled blood is not the roots of trees. So we're not rooted as trees are in the forest, as our forefathers were rooted and foremothers were rooted in, in Poland or Russia or Germany. Spilled blood is not the roots of trees, but it's the closest thing to roots we have. Let us leave Amakai with a poem about violence, which we've seen and the sense of how much we lose and how terrible maturity is for us as we cope with loss and grief. Home about those things on the one hand and what will see us through, hopefully, on the other, which is love. This is called God Has Pity on Kindergarten Children. God has pity on kindergarten children. He has less pity on school children. And on grown-ups, he has no pity at all. He leaves them alone. And sometimes they must crawl on all fours in the burning sand to reach the first aid station covered with blood. But perhaps he will watch over true lovers and have mercy on them and shelter them like a tree over the old man sleeping on a public bench. Perhaps we too will give them the last rare coins of compassion that mother handed down to us so that their happiness will protect us now and in other days. Perhaps God will protect true lovers and have mercy them and shelter them, but I don't think that's so likely in Amakai's universe. God in this poem has pity on kindergarten children and the diameter of the bomb, um, the suffering of children cast doubt, more than doubt, doubted the existence of God, of a caring God. So I, I think we, this is a different poem, but I think we have to take God's agency as perhaps but the final stanza is in our hands. It too is a perhaps, but we, this we can do. It is within our power. Perhaps we too will give them, true lovers, the last rare coins of compassion that Mother handed down to us. Perhaps we will care for and look over and protect love so that their happiness 
will protect us now and in other days. The love that people feel and show for one another is what protects us even if we are not the loved. The possibility of love in the world is what protects us. And in the very last line, we have an echo of biblical prayer now and in other days. And so we leave Yehuda Amichai, Israeli poet, poet of memory, of elegy, a man whose work is always direct, but almost always ironic, a man whose everyday language is filled with image and metaphor and often with a playfulness at the richness of language in the barrenness of loss. Amakai, for all his energy and exuberance, takes a hard view of the world, its losses, its sufferings, its cruelties. But he takes this hard view in the voice of a man endowed with the last rare coins of compassion that mother handed down to us. And so his poems are both a mourning for what is lost and a remembrance and retaining of what must be lost and a hope for the future. They do, in the words of this final poem, have the capacity to protect us now and in other days.